Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tanellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cover, sit back and enjoy. This week, listeners, I have the pleasure of introducing yet another brilliant Australian debut novelist who has exploded on the international publishing scene with an almighty bang. Her book, The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, published by HarperCollins Publishers, has been touted as one of the biggest Australian fiction releases of the year. The rights have been sold in more than 20 territories across the globe and is rumoured to be in line for a potential TV or film adaptation. I'm delighted to welcome Holly Ringland to the podcast. Hello, Holly. Hello, Claudine. Thank you so much for having me. First off, I'd like to congratulate you. It's so inspiring to hear about these kinds of publishing success stories. It's been a remarkable ride so far and one that I imagine is far from over. (laughs) Thank you so much. Yeah, every morning still feels as overwhelming and wonderful as Christmas morning when you're a kid. I think as anybody could relate to who's ever had a a dream or a desire in the arts or creativity. This is not the thing that life generally prepares you for being possible. I just feel very, very grateful that it's happening to me and has happened with Alice Hart and this story in particular. Yeah, so thank you very much. That's brilliant. Back in 2014 when you began writing your novel by hand, could you ever have imagined it would be published to such critical acclaim? Never. Not, not ever. I don't think my little hand would have kept moving had I, had I thought that it was even in the scheme of things, like in the realm of possibilities. The most important thing that I wanted to do was to just try, was to just try and do this thing, write a novel that countless things in my life up until that point had me convinced that I couldn't. For those listeners out there who have yet to discover your beautiful novel, could you tell us a little bit about it? It tells the story of Alice Hart. We meet her when she's nine years old. She lives in what appears to be an idyllic sort of lifestyle, like livelihood by the coast, you know, backing onto sugarcane fields by the coast. But her life is quite dark her mother's garden and its hidden messages, which Alice doesn't understand, and her books, her beloved library books and her dog, Toby, they all protect her from the fairly dark moods of her father. After a violent tragedy irrevocably changes her life, Alice must go, she must leave this place that she knows as home, and she goes to live with the grandmother she never knew existed, her paternal grandmother named June, and June raises Alice at Thornfield, her Australian native flower farm, where Alice begins to learn the language, Thornfield's language of Australian native flowers as a way to say things that are too hard to speak, as a way to express the the things we often can't confess out loud. And Alice begins to dream. She becomes a teenager, begins to dream, falls in love, but then betrayal sends her reeling physically and emotionally and she takes off thinking she can outrun grief and she drives inland and when you drive inland in our big beautiful country you're only going to hit the red dirt Mm -hmm. for a very very long time so she finds her place in the dramatically beautiful western desert of Australia and there she truly begins to learn that if she ever wants 
to have and experience the freedom she craves, she must find the courage and the way to possess her her own story and empower herself by using her voice and not being subversive. I heard you say on a recent interview that when you actually started to write this novel that you wrote the first line as it currently appears in the novel. When I watched my hand write it, it was as if, and this is going to sound ridiculous, but it was like my hand knew the line and was just writing something and my brain was the last to catch up on it. Of course, nine-year-old Alice isn't trying to literally set her father on fire, as we discover, but just her character and everything in that first line, she just arrived and I was obligated to her and that was the magic. She arrived and I was obligated and so even when I couldn't feel like I could continue fully for myself, I had to show up for her and thank God for that. I read somewhere that you said this novel is for every reader who's ever felt like their voices have been silenced and that it has drawn Mm -hmm. from some level of experience that you've had in your life. Is this the genesis for the language of flowers that you use in the book and for creating Thornfield, the, the flower farm, as part of the landscape of your novel? That's a great question. I discovered the language of flowers in my research before I was writing this novel. I was doing a PhD that I didn't finish and I was doing a lot of research leading up to writing this book around trauma, traumatic experience, and the act of conjuring that unrememberable experience through creative writing, not through nonfiction or expressive journaling, but deliberately and specifically through creative writing, through fiction. Because I believe fiction is emotional truth in a way that any other form of writing it is not in the, in the same way. And so I was researching trauma, creative writing, and it, there was a specific day where I was looking into voice and trauma and silence. And all of a sudden I was reading about selective muteness in children, which is a more common than we might realise response to severe trauma or severe traumatic experience. And in coming across this research, I discovered, you know, researching language and voice and silence. I came across being in England at the time, my Google searching, my Google Scholar searching and JSTOR searches, they must have maybe been sort of geographically related because all of a sudden I discovered I was reading all about this 19th century craze that swept England and Europe and then travelled across to America where people in in Queen Victoria's time in a social construct where actually expressing your true emotions was absolutely vulgar, socially unacceptable and so, you know, confrontational that this and in the, you know, this romantic period of history with all the romantic poets at their heights Communicating through flowers became so popular that middle to upper class houses had dictionaries with the butler to receive the bouquets so then people could translate the secret messages that they which were really just expressing emotion that that was too unbearable socially to say. But the thing that and I loved that, that just sort of entrapped my emotion and my uh, imagination completely. But the thing that really got me, and I perhaps haven't loved English culture more in the time that I've been here, is that not only were people sending each other elaborate, beautiful bouquets to sort of express love and 
you know, or sauciness, like get your kid off, I'll meet you under the oak tree, that sort of thing. But English people were going to extraordinary lengths to have bouquets of beauty and very deliberate arrangement made and sent to each other's houses to say, I spite you, you are insincere, you've broken my heart, I put a curse upon your house, I hate you, I never, you know, I was roaring in delight and wonder at the same time. And also it was sort of deeply emotive to think that something so beautiful could also be conveying something so real and pungent and potent without words that subversive communication and so thinking about trauma thinking about how silencing it is and what it takes away from us because of shame and because of pain and and painful memories the thinking about writing a language of Australian native flowers which was so important to me to set this in in our land. It definitely spoke to me as a way to illustrate how silencing trauma can be on a life and how even when even when we have a way of communicating, it's still not the same as ever I suppose looking at and owning our stories, you know, in our own light, with our own voice, both, you know, realistically and metaphorically. And creating Thornfield was just pure joy. Making up the language of flowers and writing this homestead and this flower farm, even though the things that happen there are not always joyful, they were the great honour and the very light-giving parts of writing this novel. Uh, Yes, in short. To answer your question, I think they all they all did play into how to construct a fictional narrative around the far-reaching shadow that that traumatic experience can cast, and and that male-perpetrated violence can cast over a life. Very specifically, yeah. The flowers are a language of healing for Alice, and also for the other women who take refuge at Thornfield. And the mm. Alice say things that she finds too hard to speak out loud. They're a metaphor for resilience. Many of Australian mm. native flowers thrive under harsh conditions. I'm guessing, from your perspective, that wasn't accidental. It wasn't at all. Um, one of the reasons why I chose, why it felt so potent to me, to work to, to work with the landscapes that raised me and the flora and fauna that that I grew up with in Australia is because they are so unique and they are so beautiful and they withstand such incredibly harsh and unforgiving weather patterns, landscapes. You know, we're a country of feast and famine with our weather and our landscapes. And the women that raised me, my granny and my mum, they were both avid gardeners. And, you know, granny in particular, she would direct all manner of things to the garden. You know, growing up, mum did the same thing. If I was overcome by something, it'd be like, go out to the jacaranda tree and take a few deep breaths or, you know, go and sit with the gum tree and have a think about that. Or, you know, go and put your hands in dirt. And all of that came together in writing the language of, of Thornfield's flowers and specifically how incredible our Australian flora is. That was a massive influence on me and their actual habits of growing and what they need to survive formed the metaphoric, uh, they underpinned sort of the metaphoric meanings of the the 
like emotion that I gave each one, like the Sturt's Desert Pea, for example, which is pretty prolific in the book. In the novel, they mean have courage, take heart. And it was formed on on knowing firsthand that desert peas, they will grow in sort of 60-degree heat in the central Australian desert and they will grow rampant and they will bloom. But if you try and propagate them at home, they are notoriously fickle. They need cotton wool, literally. They need possible scarring. They need warmed earth. But don't let them go out and be too cold. And and that just felt like courage to me, you know, how hard courage can be to find in ourselves. But once it's wild and rampant, it can almost withstand anything. And so in that way, all of the all of the plants that I've attributed meaning to, I looked to their natural growth habits to give me the metaphor of the emotion that felt true for them. And then of course there are, you know, wherever relevant in the book. There are plants that grow on what is, you know, very much still Aboriginal land and they've had medicinal and healing properties for thousands of years, which is storytelling in its own and I wasn't interested in rewriting that in any way. So wherever possible in the novel and wherever relative to the story, the Pitanjara names of the plants specific to that landscape are included as well as their medicinal properties and that sort of thing. So it was it was a glorious honour to be able to write this language of flowers. The sense of place and connection with the locations in which Alice's story plays out is very sensory, very intense. All of the landscapes in the novel are drawn from personal experience. Mm -hmm. So I haven't set the book anywhere that I don't have a personal first-hand understanding of what the landscapes or the seasons might be like. So I grew up on the southeast coast and I've travelled and lived rurally and I've lived in the central desert, the central western desert. I've never lived on a, a flower farm, unfortunately, to my great to my great dismay, but writing Thornfield certainly has, you know, given me that feeling like I have, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the blessings of fiction. So the flower farm I had to just the workings of a flower farm, that sort of thing I researched. But as far as landscapes go, I drew the story from landscapes that I know firsthand. And as it says in the back of the in the back of the novel in the author's note, I deliberately created a fictional landscape to set the, the novel in in the central desert so that I wasn't telling stories attached to real landscapes that aren't mine to tell. Yes. Now, I know that you've said that this novel is not autobiographical, but you've been fairly mm -hmm. open about the fact that you've experienced trauma through violence in your own past. And the novel mm -hmm. doesn't shy away from this as we follow Alice's journey. Was writing this novel important to your own healing, a catharsis of sorts? I think so. People have asked me on tour because, I, you know, it's, it's beautiful when you share an hour with an audience that have come to listen to you speak. and. It's such an honour to have people come and particularly with the political climate in the world around specifically male perpetrated violence against women because it is such an epidemic in Australia but also around the world. I didn't feel like I wanted to be silent anymore about where this story had come from. And so, you know, as you say, I've been open about the fact that the gender genesis of this book for me was trauma and when I was trauma from male perpetrated violence and when I was doing the research I mentioned earlier in the PhD 
about trauma and conjuring it through creative writing. I was looking at that specifically to see what what is possible for a life and what is possible for that experience if it is reformed or transformed into something else. What what would that be like? In doing that research, I was going to have to put my words my words where my where my mouth was, so to speak. Yeah. And, and be the test dummy. So questions from the audience would be like, you know, are you healed now? You've written the book. Are you healed now? Because I think it's so, you know, it's so important for hope that, that we believe that healing is possible. Mm. And, and, you know, my answer, my answer to this question with you now is, is, is sort of much the same as what I talked about on tour, but perhaps with even more conviction that I don't know. I don't know if you can ever recover, but I do know that you can be more than what the trauma has reduced you to in the past. I don't know that trauma ever leaves us kind of like a tattoo. It evolves and becomes something else with us as we live and grow. But there's a, there's a great line that, that captures my answer to you in this, which is from Brene Brown, who's the social researcher on shame. And she has this great, I'm paraphrasing her here, but she has this great quote around the fact that if we don't own our stories, they will own us. Wherever I drew this novel from, I own that story now. It doesn't own me. And that's, that's an incredible feeling. I wanted to ask you, of all the flowers that you detail in the book or not, yes. what is yes. your favourite and why? <laughs> I love I love the tone in your voice when you ask me this because it's like I think you know Claudine it's like taking a child into like a candy factory and going now pick one I'm going to cheat you out of an answer here I'm so sorry I, I just I I I don't know I I feel like I feel like maybe in a way I tried to pick a favourite and, and the result was there are 30 because there are 30 <laughs> chapters. I think as, you know, as any Australian would identify with, there's something connected to memory and history, especially if we've grown up in the country to gum leaves and gum trees and that smell of eucalyptus. But I lived in the central desert, as I said before, and when I used to go on my grocery run, I would see patches of desert peas just growing among rocks before I'd walk into the small shop to get my weekly food. And so they are the very special place in my heart, the Sturt Desert Pea. And also uh, Thryptamine and Wattle, oh, the Cootamundra Wattle. And then do you see what happens? And then the bat wing, <laughs> the bat's wing coral tree flower. I mean, I, I did ask cheekily because... I know, I could I, hear it. I, I, did, I could hear it. I did see you wearing a fabulous pair of Sturt's Desert Pea earrings. This is the amazing thing about writing a book about, you know, Australian native flowers, and I think it will happen with any book that I write. I really have to embody the story. Um, it, it makes it come real for me. It makes it come true for me. So when I was going on book tour, and, I mean, I, you know, still trying to get my head around the fact that, I, you know, the dream had manifested and was reality and then all of a sudden I was going on book tour. I'm surprised that I didn't get dressed up as a desert pea for courage. Like there were some days where I'd see photos of myself afterwards and I would have on the earrings, the brooch, the necklace, and then I'd be wearing red. <laughs> I love it. It was a, 
<laughs> a full embodiment. Now, dare I ask if you're working on anything else? You may dare. <laughs> <laughs> Something that I've been really humbled and honoured by is how many people have asked me for a sequel. And um, it really took me by surprise on tour when it would come to the end of an event in question time. And the amount of people that, that would ask me for a sequel, I don't feel like it's the next thing. I feel like Alice needs to go off and have her own life for a while and maybe me mine mm -hmm. as well, um, but never say never. <laughs> I'm just thinking about your voice. Do I dare? So, yes, you dare. And, and yes, and so now I'm stumbling and am and, and daring to answer. In the last sort of couple of months, about two years ago now, it might be 18 months ago, a, a new character arrived in a very beautiful way in my life and she's been sitting kind of quietly watching me for about 18 months and in the last couple of months I've started taking her out and giving her a voice and so so we have started something together and I just want to get on with it now wherever I can. While my life is also divided and shared with Alice because uh, she is yet to come out in, in other countries around the world and so my, my heart's never closed to her, which is a real gift and honour. But I don't want to entertain any idea of second novel syndrome you know, like it's it's there and everyone talks about it and, you know, it's so funny when people are like, oh, well, now you've got to try and do it again. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough for, for people to say that. But I just I just want to keep writing. And so I think as long as I turn up to do that, that's all I can ask of myself. I don't want to buy into any sort of syndrome if, if I can be so bold and brave. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> So, Holly, if listeners wanted to connect with you or to learn more about you or mm. this beautiful book, where can they find you? That's a beautiful question. Thank you. I've got profiles on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I'm probably the most active on Instagram and the things that I share are not just news about lost flowers or what's happening but wherever possible I use social media to try and share what it's like to live a creative life mm. and, to live with, and to live with courage. Pop in and say hello. That's where I am. Brilliant. Holly, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. Oh, thank you. And for me, an honour. Thank you so oh, much for having me. I'm so glad. Congratulations once more on such a stunning debut. Oh, that's just so lovely. Well, that's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or drop me a line via my Instagram at Claudine Tinellis or on my webpage, claudinetinellis.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. <laughs>